Welcome to Multifamily Real Estate Investing, presented by Mara Poling. My name is Pat Poling. I'm the founder and CEO of Mara Poling, and I'm happy to be with you this week to discuss a topic that, from time to time, is of real value to all of us that are investors in multifamily, and that is lazy equity. More specifically, how lazy equity costs you money. So what is lazy equity? How do I actually know if I have any lazy equity in the investment that I'm in? How do I access it? What are the tools I could use? What would I do with it? And if I'm not doing anything with my lazy equity, what do you mean by it's costing me? That's what we're going to talk about this week. Thanks for joining me. As always, if you have any questions, feel free to email me, pat at marapolling.com. And don't forget to go and swing by the Learning Center at Marapolling, M-A-R-A-P-O-L-I-N-G.com. Lots of great content for you there. Upcoming webinars, recordings of past webinars, access all of our uh, past podcasts, uh, and register for upcoming live events, which we hope to have a few more on the schedule soon. All right, so let's get to it about lazy equity. So first, what is lazy equity? You may or may not have heard that term before. If you've been a listener of our podcasts here for a while, you've probably heard us talk about lazy equity. Lazy equity is the excess equity you have in a multifamily investment. And by excess equity, we mean the equity that has built up in the asset above and beyond the level of leverage or risk that you are comfortable with. Meaning that if you and I were to both have exactly identical investments, they're worth the same amount of money, they have the same amount of debt on them, we might have different amounts of lazy equity because I might have a different risk profile than you. So there is no one answer to what lazy equity is. There is, though, one way to think about it and calculate it. So if you have an asset and it's gone up in value, let's say when you bought it, you had a 70% loan-to-value loan, and you're comfortable with that level of risk. It's grown in value to the point where now you're not at 70%, but you're at maybe 50%, meaning there is equity in that asset that's not really doing anything for you. It's not making you any safer. It hasn't lowered your uh, debt service uh, payment from that standpoint. And it's not earning you any more money. Your asset's not growing any faster because there's equity sitting inside it. And if I had that asset, and while I bought it with a 70% loan, I really wanted to be at 50%. That was part of my plan. Well, then I actually wouldn't have any excess equity. I'd be in a position where I'd say, great, I'm at the level that I'd like. And until I got maybe to 40% or 30% loan to value, I wouldn't have what's defined as excess or lazy equity. So what we're going to do is we're going to walk through an example today and talk about some of the ways you can work with lazy equity and what it really does cost you if you choose to leave the equity in place, which I will absolutely say right now, 
is a completely acceptable strategy. You do not have to access lazy equity. You can leave it there. In order to make the decision about whether you should or shouldn't access it, I think it's important to do the math so you can understand what it costs you if you leave the lazy equity in place and don't access it to get it to work. All right, we're going to use some simple numbers so it'll be easy for all of us to follow along, myself included. We're going to start off with an asset that we purchased for $10 million. Our hypothetical 100-unit property where each of the units are worth um, $100,000. So we're paying $10 million for this asset. Now, when I do that, we're putting a loan of $6.5 million on it, so a 65% loan to value. I'm comfortable with that level of risk, and realistically, given where interest rates are today, that's on the higher end of what you would probably be able to get for many properties, at least in the marketplace that I'm active in right now and that Mara Poling is working in. So if we have a $6.5 million loan, we need to put $3.5 million in cash in just to buy the property. We're going to have some closing costs, some fees, lawyers, loan fees, those kinds of things. Might be a, an acquisition commission or some other thing that needs to get paid. And there's some capital that's going to be put into the asset to make improvements. Let's say that's a million and a half for all of those things. So three and a half million as the, if you will, equity contribution or down payment and a million and a half dollars in capital and other expenses. So you're at $5 million, which is, I think, a pretty normal number that we're seeing these days, roughly half of the value of the asset going in in cash to fund all these various activities I just described. So we've got a $10 million asset. There's $6.5 million loan on it, meaning there's $3.5 million in equity. And I am now spending that million dollars, million and a half dollars on the closing costs, and I'm doing the capital work. So in order for me to get my $5 million back, right, to get to a point where I'm even, I have to sell the property to be able to pay off the loan. That's $6.5 million. I need to cover the costs of selling, which would probably, let's say it's half a million dollars to sell, just to have a number that gets us to $7 million. And then I need to get my $5 million back. So that would be $7 million plus five or $12 million. So I just bought it for $10 million. I've put the money into it to improve it. I have to sell it for $12 million just to quote unquote break even, right? I won't have any equity growth if I sold it for 12 million. Now, as it grows to be worth more than 12 million, I start building up some equity. So let's say that this asset sometime down the road is worth $15 million. Well, we just did the math and determined that 12 million would be our break even number where we would get our equity back. So we now have $3 million in equity growth that's in there. Now, is that excess equity? Well, let's take a look at it and see. If we've got a $6.5 million loan on a $15 million property, we're below 50% loan to value. 50% would be a $7.5 million loan. So we're below 50%. We're down in the 40s. 
in terms of our loan to value. So the question would be, what level of risk am I comfortable with? Maybe the 65% was really pushing the outer limits of my personal envelope. And I am really comfortable with 50%. Well, 50% of 15 million is $7.5 million. That means there's a million dollars in quote unquote excess equity. Is that really lazy equity? It takes money and time and energy to go access that equity that's there. A million dollars may just not be enough to make it worthwhile. What if I was comfortable with 65%? That's what I used originally to buy the property. I'd be comfortable going back to 65%. Well, 65% would get me about $2 million out of the property. I've grown it by $3 million. I'm taking roughly two-thirds of that, $2 million. Well, that actually might make some sense, taking $2 million out of that property and going and investing it in another property so I can continue to have it working. Now, the reason we call it lazy equity is that $2 million, and it's $2 million out of $3 million really in total equity growth we've had, but that $2 million in particular is not doing anything for me. It's not making my property any less risky. The property itself has made has lowered the risk by virtue of growing NOI, therefore growing cash flow, which has made the debt service a smaller percentage of the total uh, net income that's generated. So that's produced some improvements in stability but it doesn't have anything to do with whether that equity is in the asset or not. And that equity isn't growing. It's not making us grow any faster. If we took the 2 million out or we leave the 2 million in, the asset is still growing at whatever the rate is that it's growing at. So the $2 million is lazy. It's not doing anything. Hence the term lazy equity. Now, we could access it a number of different ways. We could sell the property. We could decide that the best way to get it is, I don't just want $2 million, I want the entire $3 million. I'm going to sell the property and do a 1031 and go into a new asset. Absolutely might be the right thing to do. Another way would be, I'm going to borrow it out. And there's a couple ways I could borrow it out. I could take out a second loan, right? I have a first loan for $6.5 million. I could take out a second loan for $2 million. And I'd now have two payments to make, my original payment, which the property is making. And now I'd have a second payment, which would need to be covered by the cash flow generated from the investment I'm going to make with that $2 million. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. I also could refinance the property and simply put a brand new loan on it for $8.5 million instead of $6.5 million. Now, if I do that, I might have a lower overall interest rate. A second loan, like a supplemental loan, the first example I used, is going to have a higher rate than a new first position loan. You've got to do the math to tell which one makes sense relative to the other, are there prepayment penalties on your existing first position loan? Lots of factors go into play before you can actually determine which one makes more sense. It's all math, though. None of this is about strategy or 
my experience in the industry or what you've heard from some uh, advisor that you're speaking with, it's just math. You sit down, you do the math, you talk to your CPA, you talk to your loan broker, and collectively, you're going to be able to come up with a solution. That's what we do whenever we have a property that's built up some lazy equity. We run all those different scenarios and then choose the one that's going to make the most sense. So in our example, we're going to we're going to refinance the property and take out a brand new loan. And we're going to, for our purposes here, we're going to say that the um, uh, that the uh, existing loan is a 6% interest rate loan. And the new loan that we're going to take out, we're going to replace it with a 6% loan. So we're not talking about any changes in rates to the original six and a half million. That is not likely. It's much more likely that the new rate will be either higher or lower than the original rate. And that needs to be part of your math. But as I said, we're going to keep it a little simple today so we can focus more on the lazy equity and understanding that component. So we have $2 million in incremental debt. So we've borrowed $2 million more. We have incremental debt service. In other words, we have a new payment that we have to make. And at 6%, the interest on that, right, the interest payment would be $120,000 a year. Now you might say, well, wait a minute, is it interest only or is it, or is there some principal involved? For our purposes, it doesn't matter because if there is principal involved, principal isn't costing us anything. Yes, it takes cash, but it's cash on your balance sheet that moves down to equity in the asset because the loan gets paid off and your liabilities get smaller on the other side. So it's net net a non-issue. Yes, it affects how cash flows in and around the asset, but we're not talking about a substantial number that's going to shift us in one direction or the other. So we're just going to talk about the actual cost of that incremental $2 million. So that costs us 6% or $120,000. So we're going to take that $2 million and we're going to go invest it in another property. Now, the properties that we underwrite are target returns and we have achieved these throughout our uh, tenure in the multifamily space. Our fund is performing at or above these levels on each of the assets we own and are in today, as an example, would be around 8% on an annual basis for cash over a hold period, right? So averaged over the hold period and about 10% equity growth, again, averaged over that hold period. So let's take the 8% cash, 8% of the $2 million is 160,000. So we're gonna generate an additional $160,000 a year in cash flow by having that two and a half, pardon me, that, that 2 million. And we're gonna take 120,000 of that 160 and use it to pay on the debt. So incrementally, we're getting $40,000 a year. But that's not the only part of the equation. That's just the cash portion. We've also got an equity growth component. So that $2 million, the asset it's invested in, is growing in value about 10% a year on average. 10% a year is $200,000. So we're getting $40,000 in incremental cash every year 
and $200,000 in incremental equity growth every year. And remember, we have not put any additional money in, right? Our, all of our money is still in our wallets and pocketbooks and in the bank. This is house money. This is money we've made inside our asset that we have pulled out and we're getting it to go to work. So over the course of, say, three years, we would see $40,000 a year in cash flow above and beyond the cost of that new debt times three years. That's $120,000 we would see over three years. And we're getting $200,000 in equity growth over three years. That's $600,000. Together, that's $720,000 that we have made over three years that we would not have made had we not taken that equity out. That's a 14.4% return. And if you're thinking, okay, return on what? You said we didn't put any money in. Well, we put the original 5 million in. So the 5 million is not only earning cash and equity growth on the original asset, but it's now generating $720,000 over three years on this new asset. And that adds to our, our uh, gain. So that 14.4%, which is not quite 5% a year, gets added to the returns we're getting on our original asset. So if our original asset, let's say it was performing at 15% total, that's cash and equity growth. And as I said, that's a little low for us, but that's let's just use that as an example. You add roughly 5% to it, now we're at 20%. So our original 5 million is generating a 20% return instead of a 15. That's a 30, 33% increase in the return without any additional risk. Remember, we only borrowed 2 million of the 3 million in equity that had grown that kept us at that basic 65% loan to value, which I originally identified as a level that we were comfortable with. So if I don't do this, if I leave the money in there, if I don't borrow it out, what's it costing me? It's costing me $240,000 a year. The $40,000 that I would have made on cash had I taken that out and the $200,000 in equity growth. It's costing me 5% and for no additional risk at all. So a couple things to keep in mind. There needs to be enough lazy equity that it's worth doing everything I just described. If we were in a scenario, again, 12 million was our break-even number we talked about, where we had 12, we could sell for 12 and a half million. That's what it was worth. Well, we're talking about a couple hundred thousand dollars of equity. That's not enough to do any of this. This that's way too low. Um what if I'm at the $15 million mark? So there's 3 million of equity that we've grown and I could get to 2 million of it and we're still growing. Well, I don't want to do this and then try and do it again next year. So I might not pull the 2 million out. I might wait another year or two years, especially if it's a property I plan on holding longer term until I get to a place where my equity growth curve starts to flatten. 
maybe in this is very typical on a value add, maybe I'm still in the front end of the hold period where equity growth can be 15, 20, 25, 30% a year. Now, remember, part of that is you're digging out of the hole of that million and a half dollars you invested into it. You have to get that growth back first, plus the cost of selling it before you actually start making any money. That's that difference between the 10 million and the 12 million. But once you do, you're you're on a pretty steep growth curve. It will start to flatten. That might be the time you'd look to do something with this lazy equity. We generally will look at this somewhere in year three, maybe year four. It all depends on what we think we might do from a hold period for an asset. We have very rarely, but occasionally taken this approach early in the period, in the second year. And that's really when you have extraordinary growth that's beyond what the original expectations were. And it's just obvious there's so much equity in there that it needs to get put to work in order to do this. Now, another way you can do this, because what we've just described as a refinance has some very positive tax implications, that money doesn't get taxed when it comes out to you. It's going to generate additional interest expense, which is a deduction. You've got a new asset you're going to buy. There's new depreciation. So lots of positive things. You can, as we said, you can also sell the asset and execute a 1031, and that way you get all of the money, right? You get all of that $3 million in equity, and you put it to work. You've already factored in the cost of the sale, because that's how we got to the $12 million. We said about a half a million dollars to sell the property. So you've already got that factored in, which means the $3 million is a real number. You're going to reinvest it, though, and when you reinvest it, you'll have some expenses associated there, just like you would when you reinvest the $2 million. The difference is you'd be reinvesting your $5 million plus the $3 million. You'd be reinvesting $8 million, as opposed to the refinance scenario where I'm simply putting $2 million in play. And that could have an impact on which scenario makes more sense for you. All of this, we think, is a great argument for actively managing your portfolio so that you can make a decision as to when the right time is to use some strategy to keep all of your equity working as efficiently as you can within the boundaries of the risk profile that you are comfortable with. That's key to all of this. As I said, what I might do for an asset I'm responsible for that looks exactly like an asset you own could be completely different because we have different risk profiles. If your risk profile, though, puts you in a position where you have a significant amount of equity that's not doing anything, you should actively consider all of your options. That doesn't mean you have to do anything. I think it's worth sitting down grabbing your calculator and a pad and a pencil and doing a little bit of math to see just what you might be able to do if you were to use one of these potential strategies in your portfolio. Now, what about those of you that are listening that are passive investors? Maybe you're a client of ours and you're in our total return fund or in one of the other investment vehicles that we have, or maybe you're an investor with another sponsor out there. Number one, fantastic. We're happy that you're in the multifamily game. That makes a lot of sense. 
good for you. You can be asking your sponsor the same questions. As the assets are growing in value, what's going on with the equity that's in there? Is there a way to get that equity to do more work for us? Our total return fund, as an example, is specifically structured to do that, to take advantage of equity as it's grown inside the assets and utilize that to buy more properties. It's tax efficient, it helps spread risk, and it increases returns. We've seen returns go from, as an example on the cash side, we've seen returns go from 7 or 8% to 12% to the mid-teens. We've seen total returns that have gone from the high teens into the mid-20s and even into the mid-30s, and not with adding any greater amount of risk, simply by taking that equity and making sure that to the extent we can, we keep all of it working within the confines of the risk profile that we're comfortable with. So if you have questions about your portfolio or an investment you have, or questions about an investment you have with us, and you'd like to learn more about how you can access lazy equity or how your sponsor could be or should be accessing lazy equity, shoot me an email, pat at marapolling.com, M-A-R-A-P-O-L-I-N-G.com. You're always welcome to, to visit our website and you can access my calendar there and get some time uh, scheduled for us to do a phone call. I'm happy to do that as well. And please continue to keep listening to our weekly podcast where we do our level best to provide information that we hope will help you become a better multifamily investor. Thank you and join me again next week for another episode of Multifamily Real Estate Investing presented by Mara Poland.